I'm not sure what those signals were up there. You were either telling me to turn something on or steal third base. All right, a um, couple of things before we begin this morning. Uh, number one, just a reminder that Nate and I will be leaving on Thursday to go meet John in Ukraine, and we are trying to fill some bags full of things for orphans. Uh, we're going to be taking hygiene supplies, toothbrush, toothpaste, soaps, shampoos, different odds and ends, things like that, and uh, we're also going to take some school supplies. We're going to take some notebooks, pencils, pens, crayons, anything like that. So if you have some donations you'd like to give to us, Anytime between now and Thursday morning, we're leaving Thursday afternoon, so uh, we're going to try to pack up Wednesday night, but if you have some last-minute stuff on Thursday, get a hold of me, get a hold of Nate, and we'll try to make sure we get all that packed in. Mr. Jim, did you have something? Toothbrushes. toothbrushes. All right, he's got toothbrushes, so uh, if you need uh, some ID on what a toothbrush looks like, Mr. Jim has one for you today. Um, second thing, this is very important. If you have time tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, we have a truck coming to the warehouse that needs to be loaded. Uh, if you don't have time tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, we have a truck coming to the warehouse that needs to be loaded. I understand that tomorrow is some kind of holiday, so some of you may have the day off, and we would really love to see you there because we need a lot of people. <laughs> uh, we, would, we would like to have as many people as we can come. Uh, so if you love the Lord and you love His work and you have a little bit of time, we would really like to see you there. Uh, and I can't promise that you will receive any extra stars in your crown for it, but I am sure that uh, the Lord will take it into consideration. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, we're going to have a prayer here in just a minute. Uh, if there are any specific prayer requests, I'll ask for them. And of course, always, I've got my phone up here, so if you're online watching and have a prayer request, please feel free to text it to me. We'll pray about it this morning. I've already received one. Uh, DP has asked that we pray for his dad. Uh, he's in the hospital right now. He'll be undergoing some tests. He's got some fluid in his legs. Uh, he said he's 93 years old, so uh, we need to be in prayer for him for sure. Are there any other prayer requests this morning that we can pray about before we start? Okay, let's have a prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day that you blessed us with. We thank you for the opportunity to come here together. Uh, in the name of your Son, uh, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are here and we are forgiven and we are standing in your presence, Father. And we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to gather as a family. And we pray that you will help us to encourage one another and fellowship with one another today. God, we have a lot of things in our mind this morning as we come to you, especially now we're thinking about DP's dad. And Father, we just pray that you will continue to be with him as he's in the hospital, continue to be with the doctors as they run the tests on him. And Father, we pray that they'll be able to figure out what's going on. We pray that they will be able to uh, relieve some of his issues, relieve any pain that he might be having, Father. And God, we ask that especially you will continue to bless him uh, in, his, in his age, Father. We ask that you will just continue to help him to... Uh, live each and every day that he has uh, in, in honor and glory of you. And Father, we pray that uh, whatever comes of these tests, Father, we pray that you will give him and his family comfort uh, as they deal with all of these things now. Father, we ask that you continue to go with all the people here who are dealing with any kind of illness, especially those who are dealing with the virus. Father, we ask that you please continue to heal them as best as you can, Father. And we ask that uh, for anybody who has the virus, that it won't be too bad. We ask that you give them comfort. And Father, for those who have been indirectly affected through so many other different ways by this pandemic. Father, we ask that you will give us all comfort and strength and encouragement. 
And Father, we pray that you will use each and every one of us to reach out and encourage the people who are in our lives. Father, we pray that you will continue to go with us today. We ask that you will help us as we study your word, and we ask that you will help us to uh, open up and, and try to learn a little bit more, both here and in the, in the worship service today. And Father, we pray that everything that we learn will be able to take out outside of these walls uh, and use them to advance your kingdom. We ask that you be with us now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing our thoughts on the resurrection, uh, this will probably be the last week that we deal with the apologetic side of things. Uh, we're going to start making a shift after today, but I think there's still a good bit of information that we need to cover. We might breeze through a couple of these slides pretty quickly, but don't let that uh, fool you. When we get to the end, we're probably going to slow down a good bit today, and more than likely, we're going to go over time. I'm sorry, it's going to happen. I am going to give you a little bit of a recap, though, because I, I think it's important, especially as we're studying this topic and where we're going to be going with this, we need to remember each week what we've studied the week before because we're trying to build something here. We're trying to build up to a point to understand what the theology of all of this means. And so to understand the theology of it, we've got to remember everything that we've talked about up to this point. So uh, if you're tuning in for the first time today, if you're here for the first time today, hopefully this will help you kind of catch up a little bit. Uh, if, if not, if you've been here the whole time, at least maybe this will help you uh, get some kind of uh, reminiscence of what we've done before. So, we've talked about why we're studying the resurrection, and I think there are three key points that we need to focus on with the resurrection. First of all, we're studying it from an apologetic standpoint. We've spent a lot of time doing that, because we need to give some kind of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Second, we're studying it from a historical standpoint, because to study the event of the resurrection is to study history. So we need to know what's going on during the time of the resurrection of Jesus. And we've talked a lot about that, but specifically as we shift starting at the end of today and moving into next week, we want to start thinking about what does this mean? Theologically from the Bible, okay, if we can establish that Jesus rose from the dead, what does this mean for us? So those are the three points that we've been trying to hit on so far over the last few weeks. We've looked at the history of the ancient world, and we've noticed that Jesus' resurrection, at least the stories that we have in the gospel, are completely unique from what we have seen in the ancient world. The supposed dying and rising gods really are nothing like Jesus and have no comparison between uh, their stories and the biblical story as well. We've also gone through the Old Testament to see that the resurrection of the Messiah, not specifically Jesus, but the resurrection of the Messiah, would, or would have been prophesied. And as we look at the story of Jesus, we see that his story fulfills those prophecies, making him the Messiah. So even though those prophecies don't call out Jesus by name, because of the fact that he fulfills them, he is the Messiah. And then, as we've discussed last week, we talked about how do we know Jesus was raised. All right, so if there are stories in the ancient world of dying and rising gods, but the biblical one is unique, and there are uh, prophecies in the Old Testament of a Messiah who would rise, then we've got to look at Jesus and we've got to say, okay, if he is the resurrected Messiah, how do we know that he is the resurrected Messiah? Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the five different resurrection accounts. Remember, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Paul gives us another account in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We looked at all of those and we talked about how a lot of people will try to demonstrate that there are contradictions between those accounts. And they'll say all of these contradictions add up to the fact that there is no true resurrection story in the Bible. 
But when you look at them closer and you apply an actual critical lens to them, what you find is that there are not contradictions, but instead one consistent story that flows throughout all five accounts. And that one consistent story only adds up to one thing. At the very least, these guys saw something. They, they witnessed something and thought that they would write about. We also talked at the end last week, and let me just reiterate this because I had to speed through it last week. Let me reiterate this. I, I think it's important to note that if the gospel writers were making up their story, if they were lying about the resurrection of Jesus, I think it would be much more likely that every detail in the resurrection accounts would be exactly the same. Because when you have people who are lying about something, especially multiple people who are lying about something, what are they going to do before they go tell their lie to a bunch of people? They're going to sit down and they're going to say, let's make sure we all have our story straight. If all five of the resurrection accounts of Jesus from five different points of view told us exactly the same thing every time, then yes, it would probably be a lie. But what we noticed from the five resurrection accounts is that they are all consistent, there's no contradiction, but they do include different information because each author wrote from his own point of view. I think that's fascinating, and I think that is just one of the pieces of evidence that we can look at to say that the story of Jesus' resurrection is a true story. This is something that actually happened, but it's just one piece of the puzzle. Today, what we want to talk about is some of the other pieces of the puzzle. We're going to talk about other biblical and extra-biblical evidence that shows us that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I'll go on ahead and add this caveat to it. There are going to be some people outside of these walls who, unless you can produce the actual empty tomb of Jesus, unless you could go to the physical site where Jesus was buried and show that there is no body there, and Jesus show up on that spot, they're not going to believe it. However, what we can do is mount a case from the evidence that we have. We can build all of this evidence together to come to a logical conclusion even though we can't see the physically resurrected body of Jesus, even though we don't know where the empty tomb is, we can at least bring up enough evidence to say, logically, the tomb is empty. And so that's what we're going to try to build up to today. We're going to deal with, uh, we, we've already got our one piece of the gospel accounts. Today, let's deal with just a little bit of biblical and extra-biblical evidence. One of the things that if you read any books on the resurrection of Jesus, one of the things that people will point out to you is some of the ancient world texts, non-Christian accounts that talk about the death of Jesus. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. Matter of fact, I'm just going to list a few of them out here for you. Tacitus records the death of Jesus. Josephus possibly records the death of Jesus. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. The Talmud records it. Uh, Lucian records it. Mara Bonserapion records it. Thallus records it. The Acts of Pilate records it. The Gospel of Thomas records it. The Treatise of the Resurrection records it. Uh, and the Toledeth Jesu. All of these record the death of Jesus. Now, they don't talk about the resurrection, but they do talk about his death. Why is that important? Because number one, if Jesus is going to be raised, what has to happen? He's got to die. And so, from a purely historical, non-Christian, non-biblical standpoint, we already have the first thing that we need for a resurrection. We have established from outside sources that Jesus was a historical person who died. Matter of fact, 
this is a quote from a skeptic. This is the most certain fact about the historical Jesus. You're going to have some weirdo atheists in, in a small sect out there who are going to say that Jesus never existed. But the majority of the skeptics out there are going to give you that Jesus existed. They're going to say Jesus was a historical person. Now they're going to say he wasn't God, he didn't do miracles, and he wasn't raised from the dead. But they will give you ground and say Jesus existed. And then they're going to give you even further ground and say that Jesus died. And of course, obviously, you know, 2,000 years ago, if he was a real person, then of course he died. But we have recorded in at least 10 different sources the death of the historical Jesus, and they are not going to question that fact. So that is one of the places we can start, is looking at these things and saying, okay, Jesus obviously existed, Jesus obviously died. Now there is an interesting thing, let me bring up this Josephus thing for just a minute. Josephus, he is a historian. He's born about the year 37, so a little bit after Jesus died, depending on when you date the death of Jesus. He's anywhere from uh, one year to seven years removed from the death of Jesus. So he's born there, and so naturally, if he's after Jesus, he would have heard the stories of the church from the beginning, because he's a Jew, and so he's grown up around it. He's heard about this church that's out there. And of course, when Rome comes into town, Josephus is going to be in the army that fights against Rome with the Jews, and they're going to be defeated, and eventually he is going to join the Roman ranks. Uh, he's going to be captured, and as he comes in, they're going to task him with the, uh, with the obligation of writing Jewish history. And so that's what he does. He sits down and he writes all these books about Jewish history. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, he's going to discuss Jesus. He's going to bring up Jesus twice within his book, Antiquities of the Jews. There is one particular quote that has a lot of people confused. See, because Josephus was a Jew. He was never a Christian, so far as we know. And yet we get this quote. Read this with me. At the time there appeared Jesus, a wise man. If indeed one should call him a man. For he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. He gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who loved him previously did not cease to do so. For he appeared to them again on the third day, living again, just as the divine prophets had spoken of, and countless other wondrous things about him. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. If you were just to read this text straight out of Josephus, the Jewish historian, what would you immediately think? First of all, you would think, this man's a Christian. Look at him. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. He says, Jesus rose from the dead. The second thing you would think is, we now have a corroborative source outside of the Bible that says that Jesus rose from the dead. This should be the nail in the coffin, right? Like this, this should be the, the point, well, metaphorically, because we're talking about resurrection, not death, but this should metaphorically be the, the nail in the coffin because this should be the point that we can look at and say, all right, outside of the Bible, a non-biased source says that Jesus died. But we come across some difficulties with this particular statement. A lot of people will use this statement to uh, do exactly what I just said. But we have some difficulties. Origen, one of the patristic writers, not long after, a couple hundred years later, is going to talk about Josephus twice. And in both of those notes, he's going to mention that Josephus was never a Christian. 
Josephus was strictly a Jew. So it would be odd that Josephus would say Jesus is the Messiah if he never became a Christian. So if that's the case, why would a non-Christian Jew say these things? Now here's what a lot of the, the majority of the academic world is going to tell us about this. They're going to say that this is actually a Christian interpolation. They're going to say that there are a lot of things within this particular passage that came from the Christian scribes who were the ones who copied this text. And it's true that as far as we know, Josephus was only copied by the hands of Christians. And so on the one hand, it kind of makes sense that, yes, at some point somebody was reading this, and in the middle of this just dropped in, Jesus was the Messiah. It's very possible. But I do think it's also interesting, as a counterpoint, that every manuscript of Josephus, so far as I have found, includes this whole quote. Now, I don't know. This is, this is a difficult thing that people are going to argue back and forth on. And I don't know that there is a good answer, because this is a 2,000-year-old thing that we have very few manuscripts of, and it's just there's no clear answer to how we do it. It is interesting, though, that when you deal with the majority of the skeptic academic world, they will say this whole quote is not there, but they will give you this. They will say it's more likely that Josephus wrote this. At that time there appeared Jesus, a wise man. He was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. He gained a following both among Jews and among many of Greek origin. When Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who loved him previously did not cease to do so. For they reported that he appeared to them alive. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. Remember again, at least the basic part of this quote appears in every Josephus manuscript as far as we have found. But he probably doesn't say Jesus was the Messiah. And he probably doesn't say Jesus was raised. It's more likely what he says is that Jesus was reported to be alive. That makes more sense to what Josephus says. Additionally, there's, there's some more parts of this argument that kind of go on, like the fact that none of the patristic writers actually mentioned this quote until uh, several centuries later. Uh, it's, it's at least the 5th century before you get this quote from Josephus. Now remember, Origen, writing a little bit earlier than that, quotes Josephus a couple of times, doesn't bring this one up. Seems like that would have been important. So there's probably a lot of uh, value in this quote, not in the full quote that we looked at a minute ago, but more in this altered, uh, edited version of this quote. Because what we're going to get from Josephus is not that he is a believer, not that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, not even a factual statement that Jesus was raised, but what he does give us that we can use and that skeptics will let us use is that Josephus reports that some people were saying Jesus rose from the dead. And why is that important? Why is it important to note that Josephus says some people say Jesus rose from the dead? Because that's one of the pieces of evidence that we can use that if Jesus died, something weird happened afterwards. Something unusual happened to the body of Jesus. Something unusual happened at the tomb of Jesus. And people were going around reporting it. It's an interesting quote. There's some interesting arguments on either side. I recommend that you go and, and look those up for yourself. I'm not going to tell you which side I actually fall on, but the reason I bring this up today 
is because I think it's important to know what the skeptics out there will allow us to use. Because we're going to play on their playing field. We're going to use the things that they allow us to use, and we will still be able to show that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's use their version of this quote, and what have we got? We've got a piece of evidence that says people were saying Jesus rose from the dead. So there's some extra biblical evidence. Let's shift again. Let's look back at the biblical evidence. This is going to be a brief one. Uh, I'm just going to kind of uh, squeak through this one pretty quickly because we've already talked a little bit about this. But I want to focus in on it one more time. Let's talk about the women at the tomb. Remember, we've already talked about uh, the four gospel accounts and all of the women who appeared at the tomb. We've got, uh, we've got Mary Magdalene. We've got Mary, the mother of James. We've got Joanna. We've got Salome. And we've got several other unnamed women. That's when you combine all of the accounts, we know for sure all of these people were there. And they are all women. Why is that important? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Sure thing. Mm-hmm. That is a, that's an excellent question. Um, so for those people who, who may not have been able to hear that online especially, the question is, out of this list of historians that are here, is Josephus the oldest, uh, or are there any that date back further than that? Um, as far as I can tell, I think Josephus probably is the oldest, but the issue that we have with him is that we don't actually have any manuscripts of Josephus until about the 6th century. So he's probably writing, uh, I would assume, somewhere before the year 100. Um, but he doesn't actually, we don't have anything that goes back that far. Everything we've got goes back to, actually the majority of what we have goes back to the 11th century, but we do have a few that go back to the 6th. Um, based on that, I would say he probably is the oldest. That's a very good question. Coming back to the, uh, the women at the tomb here, there is a reason that I bring this up today specifically. When we look at the ancient world. Now, of course, we have a very different view of women today, and I think we're all thankful for that, right? I think we're all thankful that we don't view women as property, and we don't view women having monetary value, and I want to make sure that you all understand that even though I'm about to say what I'm about to say, I don't believe the same thing that these people believe, okay? When we look at the ancient world, what we are going to find is that females are not regarded as reliable witnesses, they are not considered to be on the same plane as men. This is another thing from Josephus here. Josephus says in the Antiquities, for women, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and the temerity of their sex. Additionally, what we're going to find out is that not only are they regarded as reliable or unreliable witnesses, they're not accepted as legal witnesses. When we read from the Talmud, what we're going to find in the Talmud is that women are actually considered to be on the same standing as slaves and minors, which means that when they come into a courtroom, they have no opinion that's allowed. Women were not allowed to be witnesses in any way. So now let's ask the question. If you are going to make up a story about a resurrected Jesus, who are you going to have go to the tomb? If you're going to lie about it, who's going to be there first? Well, more than likely, you're going to have a king there, right? You're going to have somebody of royalty. You're going to, you're going to make up the most credible 
possible witness that you can possibly put there and say, this guy, this man, saw Jesus risen from the dead. At the very least, if you're not going to put royalty there, who are you going to put there? You're going to put Peter there, right? Peter's close to Jesus. Or you're going to put John there. John's close to Jesus. Either one of those, because they are men and because they were close to Jesus, they would be considered reliable witnesses, right? So if you're lying about this story of Jesus, who are you going to have at the tomb? The most reliable people possible, right? And yet, for some reason, and maybe this is God in His providence making sure it worked out this way, for some reason, the first people at the tomb are this group of women. And the five stories that we have don't lie about that. They could have lied about it. They may have even wanted to lie about it. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're going to make sure that the facts of the story are true. Nobody inventing stories 30 years after Jesus would have ever put women at the tomb. Within the time of that time frame, even within 100 years, if they're making up the stories uh, 100 years later, they're not going to put women at the tomb. The gospel writings coming up about 30 years after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus would not have made up this story. It's just another little piece of the puzzle that you can look at and say, there's something more authentic to this. There's something different about this story than other stories that are out there. So, some more good biblical evidence. Let's shift now to some more detailed stuff. Let's get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to spend a lot of our next several weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, with the exception of possibly next week, where I will tell you what we're talking about at some point. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to get a particular section from Paul here. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. This is an interesting passage, and here's why. Again, we're going to play on the skeptic's playing field today. If we were going, coming from a purely Christian standpoint in this church building, we could look at this and find this as a faith-building exercise for us. But let's play on the skeptic's playing field for just a minute. Let's look at what they will give us about this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and specifically 3 and 4, are agreed on by almost everybody. This is weird. It's almost unanimous across the board that this passage is authentically written by the Apostle Paul. There's no question that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and there's no question that he wrote 1 Corinthians 15. Additionally, it's pretty unanimous. There are a few people out there who might disagree, but it's pretty commonly thought that this book is written around the year 55, so somewhere within 20 to 30 years after the events. But what also everybody seems to agree on, and this is really fascinating, even the skeptics will agree that these verses, specifically verses 3 and 4, actually is a tradition that predates Paul. 
what they're going to say is that Paul was drawing on something that the Christians before him would have said. This was a statement that maybe they would say in their churches. This is maybe something that they might say to each other to remind themselves of the gospel. And so they're going to say that verses 3 and 4 specifically are something that goes back before the year 55. And you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of good evidence for that, that I think even from a Christian standpoint, we can look at this and say, yeah, this actually makes sense that Paul might be quoting something that they were familiar with. Paul uses some specific language here, like, uh, for instance, the, the terms that he uses about uh, that which uh, I delivered to you and that which I also received. Uh, those particular words that he uses in that context uh, would have been understood in contemporary schools at the time as an implication that he had learned this from somewhere, some kind of oral tradition that was out there. And so Paul, grabbing onto this quote that Christians would say, uh, uses it and sets it up with language that they would have understand, uh, understood. Additionally, you've got some, some non-Pauline traits specifically in those two verses. Uh, you've got some, some wording that Paul is going to use here that he doesn't use anywhere else. Some verbs, uh, tenses that he's going to use here that he doesn't use anywhere else. And so likely what people are coming to the conclusion on for these two verses, and maybe a little bit further than that, is that this may have actually been an Aramaic phrase, which again takes us back even closer to Jesus. This takes us back closer to the events. What some have said, uh, let me just read this quote, this traditional statement of faith may have been the earliest of all statements of faith. It may have even been used as early as the first year of the church. That's not me saying that. That is a skeptic scholar. Someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus but who says that none of this is real, will at least say that within a year after Jesus, there is a statement of faith out there that says Jesus rose from the dead. He's being reported as having been raised from the dead. Why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Once again, let's bring up a couple more quotes. This proclamation connects a clear presentation of the earliest Christian claims with those who were present and experienced these events. Now, that's from a Christian scholar. Let's look further at a Jewish scholar. This may be considered a statement of eyewitness. That's from a Jewish scholar, not a Christian scholar. A Jewish scholar says that these people may have been eyewitnesses who came up with this statement. A German historian, again, a skeptic, says, this account meets all of the demands of historical reliability that could possibly be made of such a text. These are people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, saying that this statement from Paul is not only authentically written by Paul within 30 years of Jesus' resurrection, but also predates Paul and maybe even goes back so far as within a year of the resurrection of Jesus by eyewitnesses of Jesus. That's pretty important stuff right there. And that's stuff that skeptics will let us use. That's stuff that they will say, yeah, you can have that one. But there's a couple of other things, and if we're going to deal with the skeptics and the atheists out there, there's a couple of questions that we're going to have to ask them. Scott, I'm glad you're here this morning. I think I'm going to call James to the stand. You may, uh, you may have heard this, uh, this sermon, so I, I might not go, uh, go too deep into this. Uh, I don't know how long has it been, a couple of years at least, since we talked about James, so it's good to bring him back uh, once in a while. 
Uh, if you need further evidence on James, if you need further study on James, Scott Lockwood's your man. He can tell you everything you want to know about him. I'm just going to give you a brief discussion about the man himself. And let's ask some questions about him today. So what do we know about James? What we know about him is that while Jesus was on earth, James was not a follower. James did not confess faith in Jesus. As a matter of fact, what we're going to find, let's turn over in our Bibles for just a minute to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, starting in about verse 20, we're going to find that Jesus came home to a crowd gathered again to such an extent they couldn't even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down in Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now Jesus is going to talk to him here for, for several verses. And now let's go down to verse 30. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. And then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and my brothers? What we're going to find out from this passage is that Jesus' brothers were not only not there as Jesus was teaching, but they seemed to be associating with the crowd that thinks that Jesus is nuts. There's a crowd that thinks that Jesus is out of his mind, and Jesus' brothers seem to be in that crowd. Now, let's give just a little bit more evidence about that. Let's look in Mark chapter 6, and let's pick up in verse 2. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 2, when the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hand? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James? Okay, so right there we've got the first named mention of James as the brother of Jesus. And Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. So we've got James specifically listed and let's look at a little bit more at what Jesus says in verse 4. A prophet is without, not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives. It's interesting that Jesus says that specifically after his brothers are mentioned by name. It seems like what is happening in this passage is Jesus is saying that, look, even my brothers don't believe in me. Even my brothers will not give me honor. But I think there's a much more clear passage if we want to turn over very quickly to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, you've got the uh, Feast of Tabernacles that's about to happen. And as we get to the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 1, uh, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booze, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he, he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. That's a pretty clear statement right there. James, we know, is among the brothers of Jesus who might have thought he was out of his mind and who certainly didn't believe him. There's another interesting thing in this passage, though, if you read back Jesus wasn't willing to go at first because they were seeking to kill him. His brothers, knowing that, said, hey, maybe you should go up there, almost implying that we kind of want you to go and die. I think if you read this passage, not only do they not believe him, they want him killed. And so this is one thing that when we talk to our skeptic friends and we talk to the people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they're going to agree on. 
they're going to agree that the accounts of Jesus' brothers are historically accurate. If Jesus was a real person, his brothers, his family did not believe what he could do. They didn't believe in him as the Son of God. And yet, when we read the biblical accounts, after the resurrection of Jesus, when we look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, who do we have among the believers? Jesus' brothers. Matter of fact, if we want to get even more specific, go to Acts chapter 15. Who do you find is one of the main leaders in the church in Jerusalem? It's going to be James. James is going to have a lot to say. Matter of fact, Paul's even going to double down on this for us in Galatians chapter 1, uh, all the way through chapter 2. He's going to talk about James having been appeared to by Jesus. He's going to talk about James specifically, and then he's going to talk about his discussion with James and his discussion with Peter as well as being pillars in the church in Jerusalem. What happened? How did a man go from wanting his brother dead, thinking his brother was out of his mind, not giving him any honor, to all of a sudden, after the man has died, he believes in him. All of a sudden, he's got faith in him. And not only does he have faith in him, now he wants to be a part of the movement. He wants to be ahead of the movement. He wants to be at the head. Listen to what Clement of Alexandria tells us. Clement of Alexandria tells us that James was actually thrown off of the pinnacle of the temple and beaten to death with a club. Now that's interesting. Why am I going to bring that up? Let's read this historical account. Again, by a church historian, Eusebius, writing about 300, 400 years after these events, tells us this. James, the brother of the Lord, had the leading seat in the Jerusalem church, which had been given to him by the apostles because he was esteemed by many for his pious and just life, the Jewish leaders brought him out before all and demanded that he publicly denounce his faith in his brother. To their disappointment, he did precisely the opposite. And he publicly confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Since Festus had died and there was no Roman leader in Judea at the moment, the Jewish leader seized the opportunity and killed James. Some became Christians in spite of the Jewish authorities because of James's testimony concerning Jesus. They're going to give us this one as a historical account too. They're going to say this actually happened to James. Why would James go from not believing in his brother to thinking his brother was out of his mind to all of a sudden being willing to lead people for his brother and die for his faith in what his brother had done? Josephus is going to tell us a little bit more. Again, he's not going to tell us that James or Jesus rose from the dead, but what he is going to say is that James, the brother of Jesus, was brought to the Sanhedrin with other lawbreakers, which we actually see in the New Testament as how Christians were considered. These are historical events that people will say actually happened. Why? Why is this important? Why are we talking about this? What made James change his mind? There's only one explanation for this. There's only one reason in the world that someone would make a complete 180 and be willing to die for that faith, and that is what we find in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. Jesus appeared to him. That's the only possible conclusion. Nobody in their right mind would die for something they didn't believe in. Nobody in their right mind would change everything they believed in and then die for it, and yet something happened to James. There is nothing prior to or after the resurrection account that can explain someone like James becoming a follower of Jesus. Once again, this is not something that would be included in an imagined story. 
If you're going to make this up, this would not be included. Because what you don't want people to see is the ugly side of Jesus' life. You don't want people to see his brothers not believing in him. And if James is a pillar in the church as we get, you don't want people to see the ugly side of James's life. You don't want them to see him before he becomes a Christian. And yet, we get the story because it's true. Even the skeptical scholars say, because of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7, it is certain that James saw his brother. Now they'll put quotation marks on it, and the way they delineate that is they'll say he believed he saw his brother. They're going to say he didn't see him, but he believed he saw him. But they will at least give us that he believed he saw something. But then I like this one too, that Jesus also appeared to James, cannot be very well questioned. They're going to admit that's a hard piece of evidence. That is hard to deal with. And if that one's hard enough to deal with, there's another one you can deal with too, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul was definitely not a believer in Jesus. And he wasn't, certainly in his life, certainly not after his death. There was a long period of time that Paul was around Jesus and his followers and didn't believe in him. If we go and we read some of Paul's testimony in Galatians chapter 1, he's going to talk about how he zealously persecuted the people who followed Jesus. Matter of fact, he's even going to go on to say, I tried to destroy the movement. We get to Philippians chapter 3, and he's going to talk about how greatly devoted he was to the Jewish religion. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul is going to say, I was violently aggressive against this movement. I didn't want any part of this because it was so different. And yet, he becomes a believer, and what do we have happen? 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us about the suffering that he goes through, about all the shipwrecks and all of the beating and all of the different things that have happened to him for the cause of Christ. And let's not forget that he's imprisoned twice and most likely has his head chopped off for his faith. What happened? What caused this man to turn his life around? There's only one explanation. There's only one possible reason. And that is because in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. When we start adding all of these things up, there's a lot of evidence here. Even among skeptical scholars, there is unanimity. That means everybody believes this. Paul certainly had an appearance that he thought was the resurrected Jesus. Now, they're not going to say it was, but they're going to say he certainly had an appearance that he thought was the resurrected Jesus. Here's an atheist philosopher. We have only one contemporary eyewitness account of the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, and that is Paul. Another atheist the most important evidence about the resurrection with which Paul supplies us is a direct claim that he has seen the risen Jesus. Paul's drastic change can only be accounted for by an appearance from Jesus. Now, I know I'm out of time, but let me just very briefly skip through these last couple of slides. We also have to deal with, and this is not one skeptics are going to give us, but we've also got to deal with the fact that there is an empty tomb. We've got early testimony of it. We've got Jewish leaders who we see in Scripture and outside of Scripture who are not able to disprove this. They cannot provide. This would be the easiest thing, right? You've got an early movement within a year after the death of Jesus that says Jesus rose from the dead. The easiest possible thing to dispel all these rumors would to be what? Go to the tomb. All right? Let's pull the body out and let's show you. And they never do. 
The fact that they never do means that they couldn't do it. If there was a body in the tomb, Jerusalem was not the place to preach because it would be very easy to just say, all right, well, let's go see. The disciples would have gone outside of Jerusalem to make sure nobody could check their story. And yet, where do they start? They start in Jerusalem. And of course, the Gospels are unanimous in their account. Just some other evidence. We're not going to talk about any of this, but you've got the transformation of all the disciples. You've got their willingness to die after the resurrection and the fact that the central point is the resurrection. They're not giving ground on this. Even to the point of death, they believe in this. So, was Jesus raised? There is strong biblical and historical evidence that skeptics and atheists will let us use to show that there is an empty tomb. There is a consistent story that is told by eyewitnesses that can only be possibly explained by an empty tomb. And there are many disciples who died for their faith in the empty tomb. So, all of this points to one thing. All that we've talked about for the last several weeks points to one thing. There is no body in that tomb. Jesus was raised from the dead. So next week, we're going to start talking about what does that mean for us? What does that mean? What do we do with that? So uh, I won't be here next week. I'm going to task Mike with doing that one. Thanks, Mike. Uh, So you'll get him, and he'll tell you what this means for us. Thank you. We'll see you later.